0: Hey everybody out there, tuning into Brainwaves this week, I'm Jim Siegler. Let's get on to the program this week. I've got a really good show for you this time. We're branching out a bit from the usual routine of purely neurologic content. The show this week features the case of a patient with an initially non-neurologic illness that later becomes neurologic. To join me this week, I'm really happy to introduce a friend of mine who goes way back with me, all the way back to our days growing up in Arkansas.
1: My name is John Baird, I'm a
0: hematology oncology fellow working at Stanford. As usual, he joins me via Skype. Hey man, how's it going? finally started
1: getting a little bit cooler.
0: I asked him to come on the show to discuss a neurologic case he shared with me a few months ago via email, thought it might be interesting. Is that a baby? Uh, No, that's Hippo. (laughs) yeah okay. hippo is uh, the cat who resides in his apartment
1: here let me uh i i can uh, put him in the room with Anne and that way i think he'll be quieter give just okay
0: <laughs> well thank you so much for joining me in the show dr baird
1: well thank you for having me
0: so john you shared a very interesting patient encounter with me uh via email can you kind of start us off just describing the case
1: Sure. This was somebody I saw in my first year of fellowship. Uh, An 18-year-old woman uh, that was previously healthy, had no real past medical history, and uh, came into the emergency department with several uh, weeks of progressive fatigue and a more uh, recent history over the last several days of gingival bleeding and nosebleeds. As as well as spontaneous.
0: I'm just going to interrupt John for a second. I know, not really a convincing story for a neurologic disease, but we'll get to that in a minute. First, you should know a little bit about the patient's background. In addition to her bleeding diathesis, she complained of a mild headache that came and went but was not described any better by the patient. No concerning features like associated focal deficits, the headaches didn't wake her from sleep, no neck stiffness or blurred vision. But in the ED, her general medical exam was quite impressive.
1: Uh, When she had initially come to the ED, she was noted to be febrile and didn't have any obvious bleeding, but had several uh, petechiae and uh, bruises over her arms and legs and had jaundice that was notable in her sclera and uh, sublingually. And uh, at the time when I initially saw her, uh, her neurologic exam was unremarkable.
0: Again, this will change in a minute, I promise.
1: Prior to the last few days, she hadn't really had any bleeding issues at all. Her menstrual cycles had been normal and uh, she had previously had her wisdom teeth extracted without any issues uh, from a bleeding standpoint afterwards.
0: Sorry, let me stop you right there because so those are really pertinent negatives uh, on a review system for a hematologist. What would that mean to kind of those of us who don't speak hematology?
1: Uh, Well, oftentimes we we ask about um, different uh, events that would be considered kind of bleeding challenges and. Certainly, dental extractions can be one of those things where, uh, under normal circumstances, uh, people will have some bleeding, but generally, uh, their coagulation system and platelets are functional and able to stop that bleeding relatively quickly. And so, um, in the case of patients who have uh, different reasons for bleeding diathesis, whether it's hereditary or otherwise, they tend to have a history of prolonged or ongoing bleeding after procedures like that.
0: All right, so she presents your ED. Nothing neurologically is abnormal about her. How was she worked up initially? On her uh, initial uh,
1: laboratory testing, uh, they found that she had a, a hemoglobin that was down to 6.2 with an elevated white blood cell count that was left shifted with uh, a lot of neutrophils and a uh, reticulocytosis with a lot of uh, immature red blood cells seen in the peripheral blood. Uh, The other notable finding was that her platelets were 52 on the initial CBC that
0: was done.
1: And, uh, that prompted additional
0: so, to summarize, the patient had a pretty severe anemia and thrombocytopenia with lots of immature cells suggesting a high turnover of red blood cells, and her neutrophil count was elevated with a left shift, indicating some sort of inflammatory process, possibly infectious given the fever. Further workup, just to fast forward through the hematology, was notable for an extremely elevated LDH. 4,831, and a haptoglobin less than 10, which are two markers indicating hemolysis. Her T-billy was 4.9, with an indirect component of 3.1, also indicating high levels of bilirubin in the serum, which is seen in hemolysis. Her D-dimer was more than 9,000, fibrinogen 354, normal, Coags and kidney function were also normal. The blood bank performed a DAT-Coombs test, which is for autoimmune hemolytic anemia, which was negative.
1: ...and suggested that there was not uh, a component of autoimmune hemolytic anemia.
0: So, based so John's team was called to look at the blood in the peripheral smear. ...and
1: I uh, went and reviewed her peripheral blood smear, and on that there were a lot of broken red cells, including things like schistocytes or helmet cells. Uh, and signs of increased red blood cell production with things like polychromasia, reticulocytes, and nucleated red blood cells. The The overall picture that seemed to be developing is that she had a uh, highly destructive state going on in her blood that was causing a lot of destruction of both platelets and red blood cells. And so certainly anytime that that's seen, it's Uh, very suggestive of something like thrombotic, thrombocytopenic purpura, mostly because it's a diagnosis that requires urgent intervention. uh, And without urgent intervention, we know that the uh, mortality rate is quite high for this process.
0: So um, how high was this rate, you're thinking? We're talking 90% of patients with TTP used to die from complications of this disease before the era of plasma exchange. A couple of things are also worth noting here that Dr. Baird goes on to discuss. TTP is just one disorder that exists along a spectrum of thrombotic microangiopathies. And for this reason, the patient gets worked up for each of these other causes. In
1: general, the associations have been uh, that people who have existing autoimmune conditions uh, such as lupus will oftentimes be more uh, prone to developing autoantibodies against ADAMS-TS13. Uh, we oftentimes will send off for different uh, serologic markers of autoimmune diseases such as lupus or uh, rheumatoid
0: arthritis, hepatitis B, hep C, HIV, antiphospholipid, antibodies, Sjogren antibodies, and sometimes even shiga toxin. Not to mention ruling out other causes like drug-induced TTP, the most common drug being quinine. In neurology, we also see cases of clopidogrel, or tycloidopine-induced TTP. So finding out the proximate cause of the thrombotic microangiopathy is important so that we can prevent it from worsening.
1: To help uh, try and
0: establish uh, an underlying etiology for uh, why the uh, TTP developed. Then there are going to be TTP mimics, like pregnancy, and other considerations for causes of disseminated intravascular coagulopathy, or DIC, like sepsis and cancer. But the classic TTP, which is more likely to be acquired than hereditary in adults, is what you see in your young or middle-aged patients. Patients with acquired TTP are more often women, they're more often black, and unlike what you're probably taught in med school, these patients rarely meet that clinical PENTAD for the diagnosis of TTP at the time of their initial presentation. The classic
1: PENTAD that's been described for TTP, uh, including fevers, confusion, renal failure, uh, and so on, uh, is oftentimes not seen in clinical practice with TTP. uh, And ideally, we would like to think that's because we're catching it earlier in the pathogenesis before people develop the full uh, spectrum of symptoms.
0: More commonly than not, patients will have normal kidney function, or the creatinine may only transiently rise and later normalize. The neurologic criterion for TTP is almost too simple. Altered mental status. And yet one-third of patients who present will have no neurologic abnormalities.
1: We know from prior studies that about 60% of patients will have neurologic symptoms at presentation
0: with TTP. Meaning 30-40% to have nothing neurologically wrong. But for those who do, it could be almost anything. Anything from
1: headaches uh, to confusion to more serious presentations like stroke, uh, coma, or seizures.
0: So you don't need Raynaud's complete Pentad to cinch the diagnosis. According to experts, the key diagnostic criteria are going to be the presence of anemia and thrombocytopenia in the absence of a low white blood cell count. And then there's the ADAMTS13 level.
1: The Adams TS13 enzyme can be uh, missing for both hereditary uh, reasons, like a congenital deficiency of the enzyme, or for acquired reasons, uh, such as an autoimmune antibody directed against the enzyme that inactivates and clears it from circulation. In either case, the loss of that enzyme uh, means that the body is no longer able to break down these large uh, multimers of von Hildebrand factor that are floating around and those multimers are thought to be central to the pathogenesis of TTP which is uh, robust uh, destruction of intravascular uh, cellular elements including red blood cells, platelets, uh, and uh,
0: It was immediately apparent to the primary team and John's hematology team that this patient was in florid TTP, and early and aggressive treatment would be best for her. While the other labs were cooking, she was immediately started on 1-gram intravenous methylprednisolone, which is continued for several days in these cases. And the plan was then to initiate plasma exchange the following day, after an apheresis catheter would be placed. But by the next morning, the patient had begun to show signs of clinical deterioration,
1: Uh, She had uh, several clinical changes, uh, including the development of lethargy and confusion. And around that same time, she was also noted to have a rising creatinine and worsening renal function. Because of that, she was urgently started
0: on plasmapheresis. Coming up in the next part of the show, we'll talk more about how the patient responded or did not respond to plasmapheresis, why the patient had become confused, and what the brain looks like when TTP sets in. That's in a minute when Brainwaves continues.
1: Support for this episode of Brainwaves and the following message was brought to you by Audible, the internet's largest collection of ad-free audiobooks. If you are enjoying the episode so far, you might like to hear My Stroke of Insight by Jill Balty taylor it's the intense story of a neuroanatomist who experiences a right-sided intracranial hemorrhage and recovers to tell the tale. You can get this audiobook and listen to it in its entirety in just 5 hours by going to audibletrial.com brainwaves.
0: So we were just in the middle of a case of a young woman, 18 years old, who presented with fevers, headache, and a microangiopathic hemolytic anemia concerning for TTP, who is now becoming increasingly more confused and lethargic, despite the first dose of pulse methylprednisolone, Again, here's Dr. John Baird.
1: Around that same time, her uh, ADAMS-TS13 came back at 5%, which it's uh, highly suggestive of a process like TTP when the ADAMS-TS13 level is less than 10%. This varies a little from institution to institution, but in general, when it is less than 10%, uh, the specificity for TTP is quite high.
0: So we're more and more convinced that this young girl has TTP and a consumptive hemolytic coagulopathy, and she started on plasma plasmapheresis. The way that this is helpful
1: as a supportive therapy is because you're replacing plasma products that uh, are otherwise being consumed at a very high rate and in doing so trying to re-establish a, uh, a balance to the uh, coagulation cascade that's been thrown off-kilter by this destructive process.
0: Meanwhile, as she's getting plasma phresis, her hemolysis labs show steady improvement. The LDH and hemoglobin trend towards normal and the platelet and hemoglobin levels rise but her confusion doesn't improve. We know
1: that uh, even when people are responding from a hematologic standpoint with uh, plasmapheresis, neurologic sequelae can still develop even uh, when someone is improving. And so in this patient's case, after she had started on uh, plasmapheresis and her hematologic parameters were getting better, she continued to remain lethargic and uh, intermittently confused uh, with what we initially thought was an agitated delirium. By the third day of the hospitalization, uh, she had a witness generalized tonic-clonic seizure
0: that required Ativan to uh, stop. She was also placed on intravenous levetiracetam and monitored on continuous EEG. The EG showed nonspecific generalized slowing, which can indicate a number of metabolic or toxic encephalopathies. A head CT was performed, which was interpreted as unremarkable, no hemorrhage. But there are many radiographic manifestations of TTP, which would be better visualized using angiography or MRI.
1: She subsequently got an MRI and MRA of her brain which didn't show any uh, infarcts or vascular lesions in any of the uh, larger vessels, but it did identify several smaller areas of T2 enhancement in the subcortical and cortical areas of the
0: occipital and parietal lobes. And no diffusion restriction, no hemorrhage, just the T2 brightness in patchy areas of predominantly posterior cerebral white matter. Now, we've seen this pattern before in other conditions, and it seems to come up a lot with the more interesting cases we've discussed on brainwaves, like in episode 53.
1: In the right context, uh, this is often uh, the appearance of PRESS or uh, posterior reversible uh, encephalopathy syndrome, and uh, that, is, uh, that is a fairly common presentation of what can be seen in
0: TTP. While PRESS is the most common radiographic manifestation of TTP, the consumptive coagulopathy can also result in cerebral infarction, or hemorrhage, which are associated with a poor prognosis in these patients. Evidence of seizure may also be observed, usually with cortical diffusion restriction in the cases of severe ongoing epileptic activity. But our patient had no strokes, no hemorrhage, and with Kepra she experienced resolution of her seizures.
1: At the time of discharge, Uh, Her neurologic symptoms, primarily uh, the lethargy and the intermittent uh, confusion, had resolved. She was discontinued uh, on the plasmapheresis, and, and the plan at her discharge was to continue a prolonged steroid taper, both for the purposes of the TTP as well as the lupus that we suspected that she had. Uh, she
0: followed up Fast forward to a couple of months later, she followed up with rheumatology, who initiated Plaquenil for her confirmed diagnosis of lupus nephritis. And with a continued slow taper off her corticosteroids, she did quite well. But around seven months after the initial presentation, her headaches returned. Uh,
1: and eventually those went on to be associated with uh, blurred vision as well. Uh, and so she again presented to the hospital. And uh, again, it was found that she had uh, clear uh,
0: laboratory and peripheral blood smear evidence of TTP. So now that the headache has returned and it seems to coincide with her illness, John got a little bit more information about it.
1: Her headaches in both cases, she noted to be somewhat positional. Laying down oftentimes would exacerbate the headache. And there was also nausea and vomiting. And so, uh, because of the visual symptoms with this recurrence, ophthalmology evaluated her. Uh, and on, on that, they noted evidence of optic neuritis, papilledema, and uh, several retinal
0: microhemorrhages. These findings swollen optic discs, blurred vision, TTP. It all kind of fits with her severe thrombotic microangiopathy. Only now she has anterior ischemic optic neuropathy from it, which you can see in lupus or in TTP. Our patient happens to have both. And so
1: because of this, uh, she was, uh, again, started on uh, high-dose steroids and plasma exchange. And uh, in shorter order this time compared to the first episode, she uh, went on to have uh, another generalized uh, tonic-clonic seizure uh, shortly after admission. When she was more stable, she underwent uh, an MRI, uh, again, that showed uh, two punctate areas of microhemorrhage in the subcortical white matter, uh, in addition to a similar uh, multifocal uh, uh, T2 series of hyperintensities in a uh, posterior distribution similar to her first episode.
0: Only much more severe this time. Now, with optic nerve involvement and cerebral microhemorrhages. So, she underwent the plasma exchange process, getting fresh plasma every other day, day after day, day after day, day after day, day after day. And seven sessions later, after not experiencing any significant laboratory improvements, her treatment was adjusted
1: rituximab uh, was added to her treatment as a uh, means to try and reduce her autoantibody titer in a more uh, uh, significant fashion.
0: So after 10 more sessions of plasmapheresis, 17 total, day after day, day after day, and four cycles of rituximab, her laboratory parameters and her clinical state improved. And she was able to be discharged on another corticosteroid taper along with Plaquenil, and the plan to re-dose rituximab, pending any rise in her CD19 levels. Um,
1: She's since been monitored for now about nine months after that hospitalization and has yet to have a recurrence of her uh, disease.
0: I remember the case of a patient who had developed a left MCA territory stroke. She was a middle-aged woman who was on chronic corticosteroids for her known TTP, and because of her history of TTP, we waited for her platelet count to return before deciding against giving the TPA. Her counts were just too low when they came back. But it raised the question of whether or not we could transfuse her with platelets and then give her the TPA. In another patient, the question came up again. This patient had a basilar thrombosis while he was in active DIC from the consumptive coagulopathy. His platelet count was in the teens, and like the first patient, we considered transfusing him with platelets in order to facilitate a more rapid correction of the coagulopathy, and maybe start aspirin or something. But it seems so counterintuitive to me to give somebody platelets just so you can antagonize their activity with some sort of antithrombotic or thrombolytic agent. It turns out, there is some evidence published in the journal Blood in 2015 that suggests that there's a higher risk of cerebral infarction with platelet transfusion in patients with TTP. There was also a higher risk of heart attack, of major bleeding events, and death with transfusions. A two-fold higher likelihood of dying. Now, this study has its own limitations, and you can find that study in the show notes. It was based on nationwide registry data. And every center has its own unique transfusion protocol and its own indications. So patients were not randomized to transfusion and there was no systematic protocol for the patients. So giving a patient who has a stroke due to TTP some platelets, it's not clearly a harmful thing if it means that we can intervene to reduce the impact of that stroke. Using TPA as an example here, while it's definitely effective in appropriately selected stroke patients, It may or may not be effective in patients with TTP if we get their platelets up for just 24 hours, but I doubt you'll find a neurologist who's trigger-happy enough to TPA a patient with TTP. More likely, for proximal occlusions at least, in the age of thrombectomy and with the extended time windows that we're using for intervention, what's to keep us from transfusing a patient with platelets so that we can safely catheterize them and retrieve the proximal clot? Now, maybe that's something worth considering. Well, I don't want to take any more of your time, John. I do appreciate you coming on the show and talking to us about this case. It's very interesting, and I certainly learned a lot about hematology and patients who come in with these unusual neurologic manifestations with abnormalities and kidney function and peripheral blood parameters. I think that it can be very confusing, and we should be very concerned early on for TTP in these situations because it is treated so differently than what we're used to. So uh, thank you so much for sharing this case. I certainly learned a lot.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's always a pleasure to uh, talk with you.
0: Again, that was Dr. John Baird from Stanford Medical Center. For more information about what was discussed today and some interesting heme slides and some figures, check out the blog entry from this week on BrainWave.me. Music for this episode was courtesy of Chris Sabrisky, Ian Sutherland, Julie Maxwell, and Raphael Archangel. I'm Jim Siegler. Have a happy holiday season, everybody, and I'll see you in 2018.